Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, hey, before we uh, jump into the sermon today, <clears throat> I was told during the meet and greet that we have a birthday in the crowd. And so, um, Audrey Smith, today your, is your 88th birthday. No. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Well, happy birthday. We are so grateful you are a part of our church and you are a joy to us. So, Um, I I know, but you know what? Katrina told me not to say anything about her birthday. So, it's not. And Ollie's birthday, too? It's everybody's birthday. Hey. Everybody has a birthday something. Katrina, happy birthday. Hey, um, one thing behind me, you might notice this painting here. Um, We have a group of people that help think through what to do during the different sermon series and how to kind of do something that's um, a little different. So this is a painting that was actually painted 10 years ago. You may have seen it. It used to be on the wall right here when we faced that way, and it was on that wall over there. But it was by a woman named uh, Lauren Cray who went to APU and was an artist, and we asked her about 10 years ago if she would paint something for our church, just kind of with the season that we're in. <clears throat> and the group that does the, in here, kind of repurposed it for this next sermon series, which is the Road to the Cross. And the idea behind it uh, from our folks is the routes are the different routes that people take to Jerusalem, that Jesus, and we're going, we're seeing all the different places Jesus connects with different people on his way to Jerusalem, and the tree represents the cross. So the roots are taking all of us to the cross, and that is where we're all headed. That's where the season of Lent takes us, is to the cross. But then behind the cross, uh, the, the sun is rising, and that's a picture of the resurrection. And so this painting that Lauren did for us 10 years ago really is about the new life that God wants to create in us. And that is what we'll kind of be looking at each week as we look at the different encounters that Jesus has along the way to Jerusalem, to the cross, but ultimately to the resurrection. And hopefully that's where we will find ourselves too. So, hey, today if you um, have a Bible and want to follow along, the the encounter that we're looking at is found in Mark chapter 9, starting at verse uh, 14. And um, I'll read it for us and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it. Here's how it starts. It says, when they came to the other disciples, uh, they, as Jesus, James, John, and Peter, came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, "Uh, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth, Jesus asked the boy's father, "Um, how long has he been like this? 
from childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into a fire or into the water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd that was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit that you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and he came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and stood up. After the, Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Let's pray for a moment. So, Lord, we are thankful for your word and, and just pray that, um, pray that it would uh, speak to us, that it would draw us into a, a deeper place with you. That, Lord, as we think about faith and think about doubt, you would... Um, Teach us and help us to trust you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the setting for this is that uh, Jesus and Peter, James, and John have just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's this incredible experience. We looked at it two weeks ago of where uh, Jesus and Peter and James and John go up and they meet up there uh, uh, Moses and Elijah, and Jesus is transfigured in their presence and is glowing. And it's as if, and what's true is that the, the glory of the Son of God is shown to these three disciples, and they don't quite know what to do. And then the voice of God the Father speaks to them and says, this is my Son whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. And just as quickly as it happens, all of a sudden, the disciples are left there just with Jesus. And this incredible experience, this spiritual experience has happened to them, and they come down the mountain. And they come down the mountain, and right away as they come down the mountain, they enter into this scene that is happening there. And Jesus' disciples are arguing with the teachers of the law. And right away, and it says this in verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. It's a really interesting little phrase there that the crowd was overwhelmed with wonder when they saw Jesus. We're not sure exactly why. Could be because it seems like Jesus and his disciples were in that area for a few days before he went up on the mountain. So possibly in those days before, he had healed or maybe he had spoken or taught and something that the crowd was really drawn by. Or some other commentators wonder and believe or think, possibly, that when Jesus came down from this incredible experience up on the mountain, that, that he was still glowing. That there was still something about his countenance that drew people to him and they're like, whoa, what happened up on the mountain? There's a temptation to stay on the mountain sometimes. There's a temptation sometimes to get to where I'm just alone with me and God. 
there's a temptation sometimes to think that a religious figure will just want to stay up on the mountain, just want to stay up there, away from everything else that is down below. But the beauty of Jesus is that he comes down the mountain. He comes down into the valley of life. He comes into all the junk that is going on, and right away he's hit with all this stuff, these arguments that are going on and all this stuff that's happening. And his disciples are probably, honestly, really confused about what's going on. Why couldn't we heal this man's son? Because a few chapters before, in chapter 6 of Mark, Jesus sends them out two by two with authority to go out and to teach and to preach and to heal. And it comes back and it says, the disciples healed many people and cast out many evil spirits. So all of a sudden, comes then, I'm, I'm, again, I try to wonder what this is like. So the man comes, he brings his son. Jesus isn't there. Peter, James, and John aren't there, kind of the sort of leaders. But the other nine go, hey, we can do this. <laughs> We've done it before. We just did it. Yeah, bring him here. Okay, come out of him. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. His disciples have to be wondering, what is happening? Why could we not do this? And, and then Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about? And, and then we get into what is called, I'm calling the risk of a desperate father. What are you arguing about? Looking at his disciples and the teachers of law, what are you guys arguing about? And, and it's kind of crickets for a little bit. No one says anything. Until finally a man in the crowd answered, teacher. I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that robs him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. I mean, we learn later on that this boy has been like this from childhood. That it has robbed him of his speech and, and that his spirit oftentimes tries to even kill the boy by throwing him into a fire or into the water. And, and, and the description of the boy's ailment sounds really very much like epilepsy. But the father is convinced that there's an evil spirit and Jesus believes it too. And this is not to say that all illness comes from evil spirits or anything like that. Most of the illnesses we come with, deal with come from the fact that we live in a broken world and there are viruses and bacterias and all that stuff that gives us. But that also doesn't mean that there is not evil spirits in the world. And there are, and there were in Jesus' day, and there are even evil spirits in our day too. And so this week I've tried to put myself in this father's footsteps. What would it be like to be this man? He probably lives somewhere up in the northern part of Israel. He... he uh, is married, I suspect. He works and just kind of makes enough to get by oftentimes. And, and he has a family of some sort, and he has a son. And the son is born. And, and you can bring, you know, what great joy comes when a child is born, right? And yet something's not quite right with him. And, the, and he and his wife kind of notice it as he's growing up and that there's something that isn't quite right with him, that, that he has these episodes and he falls on the ground and he he starts to foam at the mouth, and it's, it's all really frightening for him. And, and as with any parent, you would do anything you could to help your son be well. Any doctor, anything you've heard of, any religious leader, anything like that, you would constantly be trying to take your son to them to try and do anything you could to heal your son. 
And I wonder if time after time after time, after doctor after doctor, after religious leader after religious leader, whatever it was, that at time you wonder, what, where was this man's faith in God? It would be really hard. It would be so difficult because you just have to kind of wonder what is going on. There is, there's hardly anything more challenging to your faith than a child who is in pain. A lot of you know that. John Ortberg, in his book called Faith and Doubt, wrote that there is, there is nothing that strengthens your faith more than the birth of a child. There's nothing more that the birth of a child is a miracle which causes faith in God to grow. And, and, and that's true, right? I think of when my kids, Julia and Sarah and Matthew, were born, and it just causes you to go, wow, there's a God. This is incredible. But in his book, he also quotes Dostoevsky, a Russian novelist from the 1800s who was a believer, but who also wrote this. Death of a single infant calls into question the existence of God. And so we have this two balance on kind of this, this faith and doubt. I think some of you know a little bit, I've shared this before in my story a little bit, that I have a sister who I'm very close to, Devin, and 22 years ago or so, she had a son, Eric, who died of leukemia when he was one and a half. And I have to just tell you, straight up, that challenged and challenges my faith. When that happened, because there were so many people praying for Eric, the church had just gathered around them. There were, they tried to do everything, kind of like this father. They did everything they could. And yet Eric still passed away. And so the death of a single infant causes in, into question the existence of God. But this man's son is not dead. He's alive. But I think some of the dreams that they had for him are dying. Will he ever really be able to make good friends? Will he ever meet someone and get married? We can't ever leave him alone. We don't know what will happen. Will he ever be able to have a job and take care of himself? And so you, you wonder, all these dreams are kind of dying for them. And then the man hears about Jesus. He hears about Jesus, how he's healed people. The blind can see. Some people who are lame can walk. What if I get my son to Jesus? What, what, what could I do to get him to them, maybe? And so he uh, gets up one morning and dresses his son, says, we're going to go try to get Jesus. We're going to go try to get you to Jesus. And I imagine, and I just think of through the, the faith it took to take his son to Jesus. And then sure enough, they get there, and Jesus isn't there. His disciples try, but they don't do anything. They can't do it. And, and so what I love about the fact is that this, is that the man has to be wondering, is this just another disappointment after disappointment after disappointment? And he's standing there with his son, and the disciples, and the argument is happening. And the beauty of this for me is that Jesus comes off the mountain into 
the man's valley. Jesus comes off the mountains into the man's valley. And so Jesus says, uh, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I think he's speaking to his own disciples. I think he's speaking to the crowd and the religious leaders. So they brought him, the boy, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it's often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Love that line. It's one of the great lines in scripture. I do believe. Look, I had enough faith to get up this morning to get my son and to bring him to you. I really do believe. But help me overcome my unbelief. I think we're all like this. All of us, this is this statement because it's so authentic, it's so real, and each and every one of us, is, a, is we are a combination of faith and doubt. We really are. The beauty of Ortberg's book that he writes, and he says the most important part of this title is the and. That we are all a mix of this each and every day. And I really believe that we are all on a continuum of faith between no faith and perfect faith in God. And that the gap between where my faith is today and perfect faith, I would call doubt. My faith is there, and what's in between me and my 100% faith is doubt. And I believe that perfect faith can only be experienced when we see God face to face. Honestly. That's the only time we will ever have a 100% perfect faith. Billy Graham, when he was in his 90s, I think he lived to his 99, was asked once by a reporter, um, are you looking forward to being in God's presence and hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant? And Billy Graham paused for a moment and said, well, I hope so. I hope so. John Ortberg, in the introduction to his book, says this, I will tell you a secret. I have doubts. I spent my life studying and thinking and reading and teaching about God. I grew up in the church. I went to a faith-based college and then to seminary. I walked the straight and narrow. I never sowed any wild oats, and I have doubts. I tell you the more than that. There's a part of me that after I die, if it all turns out to be true, the angels are singing, death is defeated, the roll is called up yonder, and I, there I am. There's a part of me that will be surprised. What do you know? It's all true. After all, I had my doubts. Hey, I can line up right with what Ortberg just said, honestly. Now, Ortberg also says this. He also has faith, and he has bet the farm on it. He has bet the farm on it. He's put his whole life into the fact that this is true. But we are all a collection of faith, and doubt. The 
father who brought his son to Jesus was a collection of faith and doubt. So when Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, verse 25, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked. It convulsed him violently and he came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he stood up and the father's risk of faith paid off. He brought his son to Jesus. He didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus came off the mountain into this man's valley and he healed him. And I have to imagine the father's faith grew that day. The father's faith in God grew because he saw Jesus at work. Now, the other group that's a part of this encounter are their disciples who couldn't heal the boy. And and the disciples are a really interesting mix. And, And they are a group of doubters, just like you and I. And so when they're inside... It says this in verse 28, Jesus had gone indoors and the disciples asked him, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Some translations say and fasting. Most scholars don't believe that the and fasting was originally a part of it. But this kind can only come out by prayer. And so the disciples learned something that day. They learned something about the spiritual world. That it's a couple of things. They learned that there might be different types of evil spirits. Interesting to think through. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. And they also learned that prayer is powerful. They couldn't do this on their own. They couldn't do this with all the experience they'd had as disciples and the other times they've done this, that it only came out because prayer is powerful and they had to rely on God's power through prayer. And here's the other thing that I've learned this week too is that prayer is a step of faith. Every time we pray, it is a step of faith. That we are believing that our God hears us. We are believing that our God will do what is best with what we bring to him. It is a step of faith. And the amazing thing about these disciples is that they are doubters just like us. Earlier, John the Baptist wondered if Jesus was the Messiah. We have doubting Thomas named. And then the crazy thing for me is after the resurrection, when they are in Galilee and they go to what is called the Great Commission time, it says that when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And again, just like them, we are this mix of faith and doubt. So how does faith grow? Right? If if we're on this continuum and it it goes back and forth between faith and doubt, how how do we grow our faith? And, And there's a couple different ways I think it grows, and both of these are really important, and they honestly might fall at times along generational lines a little bit, though both of them are important. The first way we grow is we grow intellectually. We think, we ask, these are the questions. Does it make sense and is it true? Right? The more we learn about God in the Bible, that this whole area, and this is the whole area of what we call apologetics, right? It's, it's Josh McDowell, he wrote uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's Lee Strobel and The Case for Christ. And 
and this is really important because our faith is not blind faith. We have our faith that comes from a set of truths that we believe in, of things that we can study and look at, and this is crucial. Our faith is not blind faith. The Bible is, I, I have a, I was going to tell you I counted all these, but I didn't. But I have a Bible um, software that does this for me. So you, um, the word faith in the Bible, 420 times. The word doubt, 13. This is a book of faith. This is the book of faith. This is what the Bible is for. As we read it and study it and memorize it and allow it to become a part of us, it is to help us grow in our faith. And we grow intellectually. Here's what Philip Yancey says. He says, something about Jesus made people leave their jobs and families and follow him around the hills and plains of Palestine. Something about him attracts the allegiance of one-third of the people on this planet today. I've taken a look at the evidence and concluded that Jesus is who he says he is, the human expression of the invisible God. I've taken a look at the evidence. I myself can say the same thing. I believe there's a strong evidence for a God, and the Bible is trustworthy that a man named Jesus lived in Israel 2,000 years ago, that he claimed to be the Son of God, and he proved it by his words and his actions. He taught people about God and what it means to be a child of God. He was arrested he was crucified, he rose again from the dead through his death and resurrection. We can experience the forgiveness of sin and have the hope of new life. That comes from believing and studying the scriptures to get to a place where I believe it. Intellectually, I understand what it means to put my faith in God. But there's another side of this where we cause our faith to grow, and that is experientially. And the questions that we ask here are a little different. It's, is it real? Does it bring about good? Does it make a difference in the world? Because here's what can happen, unfortunately, oftentimes, is people who say they believe in Jesus and believe in God intellectually, their life does not show it. They can be the most hard-headed, uh, selfish, impatient people in the world. And people look at that and go, really? My faith is not going to grow by watching your lifestyle, by you telling me this stuff. And so we have to see that we experience it, that it, that it is real, that we have to see that God is at work in our life. And, and this is what happened to the father who brought his son. He experienced the good work of Jesus in his son's life. We see prayers answered. I was watching... Um, uh, Francis Chan, who spoke, I think it was at APU in the fall, and he said that the thing that is causing his faith to grow more than anything right now is his prayer life. He's spending time in prayer, and he's seeing God answer prayers, and it just grows your faith. We see real change happen in our own life and in the lives of others. So your faith will grow from intellectual but also experiential. And everyone's a little different on how that works. I say we're a mix of both. 
So let's just admit this. We are a mix of faith and doubt. Anybody out there doubters? Anybody out there have faith? Yes. We're a mix of both. And it's fluid a little bit. Our, our faith can grow. So here's the encouragement. Take a risk like the father. Take a risk like the father who brought his son to Jesus. Bring your fears and your struggles, your doubts, your questions to Jesus. Say, here's a, here I am. Bring your doubts to Jesus. Trust that he is who he says he is. And you see, this really fits well with our vision statement, I think, because we are, want to help grow disciples who authentically follow Jesus. And part of being authentic is to say, you know what? I am a mix of doubt and faith. I am trying to grow my faith. I'm trying to trust Jesus more. But there are times when I struggle with that. And our faith grows at times when we're learning the Bible. Our faith grows when we put ourselves in positions where we see that God is at work in our lives. So Henry Nouwen uses an illustration where he talks about this idea of what it means to have faith. And he came up with the idea by watching uh, trapeze artists at a circus. And the trapeze artists, you know, they go back and forth on the thing, and, and there's the flyer, and there's the catcher. And faith is the flyer getting going and then letting go. And the flyer comes around. And it's all about the catcher. And for you and I, our catcher is God. Our catcher is the Father. And faith is when we can let go. And faith has said, God, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know where you are in this, but I am going to let go, and I'm just going to put my arms out, and I'm just going to feel you grab me. That's what it is. So again, just to remind you, and these are ways that you can take a risk. These are ways that you can let go a little bit. This next Wednesday is the Ash Wednesday service. Come between 11 and 1 or 4 and 6 and experience what God wants to do in your life through that time. Next Sunday night, March 1st, 6.30, really, really important time, I believe, for our church to gather together. To come together that might be a little different than what we've done in the past. Some worship. So I'm really listening for what God wants to say to us, but it is what we will have to kick off this season of fasting and listening for what God wants to do. It'll be a step of faith for all of us to see what God wants to do in our lives. So we're all a mix. Faith and doubt. Bring it to Jesus and ask him to grow your faith so that you might let go of that trapeze when he calls you to let go. Let's pray. Mm.